Well, good evening and welcome to Steadfast. I am so glad to be with you as we wrap up our series foretold. Over the last few weeks, starting at the beginning of Advent, we've been thinking about the prophecies that are behind the coming of Jesus that we see told in the Gospels. Before that, we did a series this fall asking, is this going anywhere? Asking about the story of the Bible, is it headed any place in particular? And also, it's the story of our lives. Is it going anywhere in particular? We see in all this is the, the beautiful interwoven tapestry, the thread that God is running of his love from the beginning to the end of both the story of the Bible and the story of our lives. And, and tonight, as we wrap it up, we're picking up where we were last night. We looked at the story of the wise men. It was Epiphany Sunday. As we thought about them and, and their coming, we see them coming to worship the newborn king and thought about how that tied into being those who reflect God's light, we're going to turn back to Isaiah 60, a, a prophecy often associated with the coming of the wise men, and, and think about what it says about not only their coming, but what we're called to do right now. Where are we going in our current moment, in our lives in this moment? And how does that give us hope that God's not done yet? That that thread that he's weaving through is still being woven that we'll someday see it in its fulfillment. What a better place to end foretold. So let's come before our God and ask that he would help us as we look at this passage tonight. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for your goodness and your love, for giving us your words so that we can see the interconnected story in it. Too often we miss the details of it, and yet your thread of, of, of love that you've woven through every part of it we know is one that you have woven for each of us. And as we live today and as we reflect on our lives and as we seek to do what you've called us to do, we know that you are still weaving that tapestry together. Someday we might see the fullness of what you are doing. In this moment, as we look to that, would you give us hope? Would you give us clarity as to what it is that you're calling us to do? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Earlier today, I was reading a really interesting story about the moon. Did you know it's been 50 years since we last set foot on the moon? Kind of weird to think about that the whole space program that we read about in history books or, or maybe the whole space program that, that you were anticipating and watching on television as it was happening, because it wasn't that long ago, but the whole story of the space program up to the point of arriving at the moon, was shorter than the time that's been since we went back to the moon. Now it looks like we're finally headed back. And as we think about heading back to the moon and, and maybe beyond the moon to Mars, there is a lot to think about, about how all that goes into play. And that article I was reading was talking about that. And it made me think about the moon a little differently. Because I look up at the moon and... You can see what part of the month it's in, whether it, you have the full moon or a half moon or a new moon, wherever it might be in the cycle of reflecting the sun's light to the earth. Maybe especially when we're closer to a full moon, we see the craters and then how it forms the face of the man on the moon. And we look up there and there's this thing up there that that just feels comforting. Maybe we think about it a little bit further and we think about the glory of, of God's creation, how beautiful he made everything. 
But this article wasn't talking about those sorts of things. What it was talking about is what do we do with the stuff on the moon? Because I think of it as just this thing, the moon. And yet we know there's rocks and dust. And and more recently in 2020, we confirmed there's water on the moon. And so there, there's stuff there. And if we're going to go into space, if we're going to maybe have a base on the moon, if we're going to go from the moon then to Mars, one of the things scientists want to get down is how do we use the stuff of the moon to do so, so that we don't have to lift so much stuff up from the Earth and get it to the moon and get it beyond the moon. For example, they're experimenting with that dust and rock on the moon to see if we can somehow pull it together into bricks like we would do with the materials of Earth so that you could build shelters and, and facilities on the moon without having to ship material up there, which is, of course, incredibly complicated and incredibly expensive. And so here's this thing that just looks like this thing out in the sky that we look at every night. And, and there are people thinking about, well, how do, you to, how do you take the dust and the rock on it and turn it into something? How do you take that water that's frozen on there and extract it so that people living on the moon could be sustained? And you realize there's a whole lot more to the moon than I normally think about. Expand that to the universe. I, I, I know not only, well, I never understand the whole universe. Human beings will never understand the whole universe. We physically can't reach the outer limits of the universe. And neither can we reach the outer limits of God's plan. We'll, we'll never fully understand God's plan. The question is, what are we going to do with what we do understand? We said, well, we don't fully understand the moon, so we're not going to bother to go back there. Or we don't fully understand space beyond the moon, so we're not going to bother to try to explore it. I, I think we'd miss out on things that God's given us gifts to explore, beautiful, amazing things that he's made. And likewise, when we say, well, I don't really understand where God's taking the world or, or me, my life, my gifts, and so I'm just not going to do anything, we're missing out. Imagine if the Magi had said, we, we don't fully understand the prophecies that we find in these these scriptures of these Israelites that, that they, they've been studying for centuries and they talk about this Messiah and we see some interwoven threads there. We see the promise of, of a coming Messiah. We believe that it's associated with the star, but we don't fully understand it, so we're going to just stop. But thankfully, they didn't. They didn't do that. They, they went and they worshipped the newborn king and they probably didn't have a full comprehension of everything that we do, much less everything that Jesus is when they did so. But they knew that it was important and they knew that God was at work and so they responded. And that's what we're called to do too. And as we look at this prophecy that, that is associated with that journey of theirs, we're reminded that it's not finished yet, that we too need to respond in the incomplete understanding of it and see what God's doing. Let's go ahead and turn to Isaiah chapter 60, starting with verse 1. It says, Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. It's a beautiful prophecy. What do we do with it? Who's it even talking about? That's the first thing we should ask. And as we ask that question, we see in what's being talked about before and after that Isaiah is giving a prophecy referring to Jerusalem, the, the capital of God's people. He says, Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Now, 
the temptation sometimes is to look at that and say, well, maybe Isaiah is referring to when the people of Israel were able to return and rebuild because Isaiah is, is giving his prophecies before the exile to Babylon, before God's people face the judgment that they will face for turning away from him. But he's giving a lot of it to provide them comfort and assurance that he's going to restore them. And so maybe that's what's being referred to. But but as we go on here, it doesn't fit. As we see in, in verse 2, as a, in the middle of verse 2, it says, The Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. Verse 3, And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Well, we look at the, the return from the exile, and they do get to return, but it's not glorious in particular. It's not even what it was before. So maybe there's a hint of fulfillment there, but we start to get much more of a sense of fulfillment at the coming of Jesus. Because where is he born? He's born in the city of David, not Jerusalem, Bethlehem. But the two are closely associated, and more importantly, they both represent in different ways God's people. He would ultimately minister in Jerusalem. So we start to see a picture here of a messianic coming, that, that, that the Messiah is going to come and make things right. It's so much more than merely an exile's end. Something magnificent is going to come. And then we get to that wonderful verse 3. It's actually the verse that caused some people to, cause the magi, to call the Magi kings, because it says kings are going to come to the brightness of your rising. Now, we have every reason to believe that the Magi were advisors to kings. They weren't the kings themselves. But certainly over history since then, we've we've seen kings bow down to Jesus. That, that kings have realized they're not the greatest king in the universe, at least intellectually. Sometimes they, they don't act like it. All too often they don't act like it. But, but certainly that's already started to happen. And it's also setting us up to anticipate that there's going to be more. That the Magi are a down payment. They're a starting point here. We see these influential advisors to, to other kings coming to worship this newborn king because they realize that God's doing something. And while that's not the complete fulfillment yet, the, as they looked to that star, they saw the glory of God and they knew that they needed to come. And so we get a picture of how there is this magnetic force of God's people that he draws people in. And that is happening even right now. We see that happening. Think about it. Imagine going back 2,000 years and, and telling, say, the Apostle Peter that, that people on a continent that wasn't even known to exist in the quote-unquote known world of the Roman Empire and the surrounding empires, a continent that wasn't even thought of exists and that there's millions and millions of people on that continent, on two continents, in fact, that, that worship the Lord there. God's drawn people from all around the world to him. It does challenge us, though, as we think about the purpose of God's people to be a magnet. What kind of magnet are we? Are we the kind of magnet that God intends us to be? I like playing with magnets. They're, they're fun. And you think about magnets and what we can do with them. And if you've ever just taken two nice magnets, ones where we know the polarity and where they are, so we can take them. And if you take reverse polarity, you have a negative and a positive and you put it together and they they stick together. And if they're really good magnets, you kind of have to wedge them apart a little bit, maybe stick something in to pry them apart because they're, they're pulling together. That's what we usually mean by magnetic. There's also the reverse of that though. If you take 
two magnets with the same polarity facing each other and you try to put them together, what happens? They start to repel each other and push the, each other apart. Too often over the course of history, God's people have been to the world like a magnet with the same polarity and we push people away. Too often we do that today. We don't see people coming and saying, I want more of the king. I want more of God's glory. We see people saying, I wish that those Christians would just mind their own business and leave us alone. And, and why is that? I think it's because both sides of the magnet are good, but it has to be provided in the right direction. Too often today, people hear us talking about the righteousness of God, but they don't see righteousness in the church. They hear us talking about the love of God, but they don't see us being loving. They, they hear us talking about the restoration that Jesus provides, but they see us tearing each other down. And so what do they see? They see a mirror of the world. They see the same polarity that they have. And so as we come to them, they're not being drawn in. They're being repelled. But what happens when, when we're actually practicing God's love, when we're showing it into the world? What happens when instead of condemning the world for its lack of righteousness, we as the church practice righteousness ourselves? What happens when we truly live as sons and daughters of the living God? Well, then we're very opposite of the world. And in some sense, by being so different from the world, we'd expect to, that the world would just flee. And yet we find that God is shaping us to be those magnets, that, that we have the opposite polarity and that the world, even as it opposes and even as it questions and even as it, it's angry at who God is, finds itself strangely drawn closer and closer together until more and more people are gathered into the kingdom. That's what we're called to be. We need to ask ourselves the question, am I in my life, in, in my communities, in my work community, in my school community, and in my neighborhood as I'm just walking around, as I go to stores and, and deal with people, every place that God puts people around me, am I being a magnet that repels or am I being a, being a magnet that draws people in? Are we magnetic for God's kingdom in the right way? Do people want more of God's kingdom? Isaiah 60 speaks of a time when people are going to want more of his kingdom. It's not there entirely yet. But, but here's the amazing thing, that we are called to be those who are a partial fulfillment of that right now. Just as the wise men were that down payment and they show up as, as the first sign of those seeking from outside the people of Israel to experience the glory of the God with us miracle, to experience God in a manger, to experience God in human form, but they wouldn't by any means be the last. So too, we are a part of that down payment of the prophecy. As God calls us to do our, the work that he has gifted us to do, we're doing his work and continuing to see that prophecy fulfilled. And we see the scope of it, that, that just like we don't fully understand what the moon can do and what it, it, it's built of and how it will function in the future for us and what our interaction with it will be, we don't fully understand the universal impact of the gospel yet. But we're told very clearly that it is universal, that God is going to continue to expand the borders of his kingdom. And that's what we see as we go on. Isaiah 60 verse 4. Lift up your eyes all around and see they all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. They shall see and be radiant. And your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. 
The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall come, shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praise of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Naboth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. Who are those that fly like a cloud and like doves to their windows? For the coastland shall hope for me, the ships from Tarshish first, to bring your children from afar, their silver and gold with them, for the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel, because he has made you beautiful. Wow. What's being described here? description of the world. Now some of these names are biblical geography names that, that we run into frequently in scripture and they're not really that far away from Israel, but I say it doesn't stop there. As he continues to tell this prophecy, he, he speaks of Tarshish and maybe you've studied the book of Jonah and you've run into this name before and our best understanding of it is it was a port in Spain run by the Phoenicians. And Spain at the time represented the far reaches of the world. As far as they knew, that was as far as you could go. And so when he says Tarshish, he's saying, Shish, from everywhere in the world, people will come to see the glory of the Lord. Where were the Magi coming from? Well, we know they came from the east. We don't know precisely where. Many speculate from Babylon. It'd make a lot of sense. The The Jews have been exiled to Babylon. Many of them still resided in the region and could have shared their scriptures with the wise sages of the land. They gathered wisdom from all over the world, and, and some of them presumably studied the Old Testament. And as they did, they saw these prophecies, and, and it would seem as though a few of those studying those prophecies and seeing what was happening in the sky realized that God was at work and went responded with the knowledge they had, imperfect as it was, to go and to worship the newborn king. They went and did that. We don't know exactly where, but it doesn't really matter. They're only the starting point. God's going to draw people from all around the world. And that is indeed what we see. As I mentioned a moment ago, imagine trying to describe to anyone, even a few centuries ago, how far the gospel has gone now. Lands not even known to exist now have people worshiping the name of Jesus in them. And God's not done yet. God will go beyond the known reaches of the world in our minds as well. He plans to restore the earth. He, he isn't satisfied to fix just part of it. And, and when we read about Jerusalem here, we shouldn't just think, well, someday God's going to fix up the city of Jerusalem and there won't be all the conflicts going on it, that kind of thing. What's he saying? Jerusalem represents God's people. Jerusalem is the capital of the power of God's people in the Old Testament. And when we see the restoration of Jerusalem, when we read passages like this, what it's saying is the, the epicenter of, of all the power of the world, the epicenter of all the concern of the world will be centered in God's kingdom. It's not so much about one earthly location as it is to say that people's attention is going to be turned towards God. He's going to restore them. Take a look at Isaiah 52, verse 15. Isaiah 52 is part of the servant song maybe most familiar to us, the one we read frequently at Easter. 
And he's talking about the servant, the Messiah coming, and he says, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. The nations are going to be restored. That's why Jesus came. He came to restore people of all nations, all tribes, all tongues. Everyone will come and confess the name of the Lord. We look at the world. Do you ever look at it and think, okay, I, I, I know the gospel is supposed to be proclaimed around the world, but the world is so broken. How can this ever be fully fulfilled that everyone's going to come and worship the king? We can't even get little things changed. The last few months, uh, I think it was back in September now, I had to change some of my main account passwords, and I still feel like I keep finding places where I have to change my account information over and over again, trying to get it all updated, and I can't even get my passwords all updated. How in the world is God going to change the brokenness of the world when there's so much brokenness? I mean, there are an awful lot of wrong passwords around, and there's an awful lot of things far worse than wrong passwords around. How's he going to do it? We can't even bring about little changes. But when we get caught up in that, we're getting caught up in thinking, I either need to know everything about the moon, or I shouldn't even bother to hope that we'll ever go there. If, if all I can see is the, the man on the moon-shaped craters and, and the way it reflects light, and I say, well, I, I could never understand the moon, I guess we'll just give up. If that's what people said in, in general... We never would have set foot on it, and we would never return to it. And we'd never see some of the other wonders that God's created that I believe he's gifted us to go and explore over time. So what do we do? We act in faithfulness in the moment. Why are we given prophecies that fulfill themselves in layers like this? That, that we see the down payment of the Magi coming, and then we see more and more and more over time. Why do we have things like that? Well, we have them that we can see that God is still at work and we don't lose hope. Because part of it's already happened. Part of it's already happened, even though it doesn't seem like it, it should have ever happened at all. That wise men ever should have come into a little stable in Bethlehem. Or into a house in Bethlehem, more likely, because they're probably out of the, the manger at that point. But how much even odder to, to knock on some door in, in a city and, and say, hi, we're we're important people from the East and we'd like to come and worship your baby. I mean, it doesn't seem like it should have happened and yet it did. So much of Jesus' ministry seems like it shouldn't have happened. God being in the world seems like it shouldn't have happened and yet it did. And he's still with us. And what we see as we look at that thread woven throughout scripture is that God's plan is wonderful. And it is foretold so that we can hope. It's foretold so that we can know that he is with us. It is foretold so that that we know that as he calls us to act, that even in the improbable, that, that it may be to think that the world will ever, ever be restored, that we can have confidence that he will restore it, that he will make it good. That truly, someday, everyone will look at God's kingdom and see that it is beautiful. The question is, are we being magnets in the moment? Are we drawing people in so they can experience that beauty? Because God's promises are foretold, not just so that we who already have it can have hope, but that many more would have hope as well. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for giving us the hope that you do. 
We sometimes lose sight of it. We sometimes look in our own lives. I look in my life and think, how is this ever going to come together? And yet, Lord, you bring it together. You are working. You're taking the dust and the rock of our lives and turning it into to bricks for the kingdom that you have already achieved, and yet you are still revealing to us. Would you help us not to lose hope? Would you help us to direct our thoughts and minds towards you? Would you help us direct our hearts towards you? And that even when we don't fully understand, we would go forward with confidence with the parts we do understand. Going forward knowing that you are working and you will continue to work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope this was an encouragement to you tonight. And if it was, please do give it a like or share. You never know how you can help build a part of that brick in someone else's life. Help them to see some of that thread being woven through their story. Maybe tonight's message and digging into Isaiah 60 is just what they need tonight. So please do like and share this post. There's plenty of more opportunity, even though we're wrapping up for told. We have plenty more to study God's word throughout this week and we have plenty of more opportunities beyond that in the weeks to come this week check it out we have tuesday and thursday night bible studies if you're not part of a bible study you've been wanting to get involved in the new year i would love to have you as part of one of these we have a tuesday night bible study going very slowly and in detail through scripture if you just want to pick up the details and we have a men's bible study on thursday nights they're both at 7 p.m Feel free to shoot me an email or leave a comment in the comments and I'll help you get into one of those studies. Also, we will be starting this year's This Week at Little Hills on Thursday. You don't want to miss that. They'll be posted online and we're going through the Minor Prophets. It's going to be a little bit more bite-sized and and just a little something to help us get through the week on Thursday. And then, of course, in-person and online worship on Sunday at 5.30 p.m. I do hope to see you there. And then that brings us all the way back to next Monday when we start a brand new series here on Steadfast. It is entitled Sustained. We're going through Psalm 3 and looking at how David is is sustained in the hope of God's promises and how we can be as well. Well, I hope you have a wonderful and blessed night. If there's any way I can pray for you, feel free to shoot me an email at the email address on screen or leave a comment or prayer request in the comments below. I can't wait to pick up through these other opportunities this week and to see you back here next week.